Welcome to another episode of The Viscast. In this episode, we will be focusing on Advent, because we are currently in the season of Advent. Advent is roughly the month or so leading up to Christmas, and it's the term Advent is from Latin, and it means to come. Um, Advent is the season in which we we being Christians, think about Jesus' first coming, and then sometimes also think about Jesus' purported second coming. So in this episode, we talk about the first coming of Jesus as a baby, and we return to a subject we talked about early on in this podcast, which is the ways in which the gospel writers mainly Uh, attempt to tie Old and New Testament mainly by plucking out passages from the prophets of the Old Testament and claiming that they apply to Jesus and Jesus' ministry. We also talk about the second coming and our sort of current thoughts about that. One point of clarification There is a quote from Richard Hayes that I give and um, that we then discuss. In that quote, Richard Hayes is a New Testament scholar. He uses the term evangelist, and he uses it to refer to the gospel writers. That is, referring to the gospel writers as the evangelists, those bringing or reporting the good news of Jesus. We then use the term a few times, and I realized in listening back to it that it might be confusing to, to some of you. So when you hear the term evangelist used in this podcast, it is referring to the gospel writers. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. So when I think about Advent, I guess two things come to mind, and I think this is what the, the church calendar and the, um, the lectionary uh, has in mind for us to think about two things, which is Jesus' coming, his first coming as a baby. Um, so that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But then also for us, typically the lectionary is also set up, if we want, to think about Jesus's second coming. And so I've been thinking about those two things, and I don't have a lot of refined thoughts about much of anything, really, anymore. I have ideas, and I have questions. So when it comes to the first coming, um, as a baby, we tend, or my memories of Advent, are that we spend a lot of time... um, trying to connect passages in the Old Testament with uh, Jesus' coming and his ministry. It can be, you know, it doesn't have to be particular to his birth. It can be anything that might sound like, I think for most people, they would use the word a prediction from the Old Testament, therefore generally from the prophets, um, about Jesus' birth or about Jesus' ministry, Um, less so often because the Old Testament doesn't really lend itself to this about his death and resurrection. That's a tougher one to do if you're using the Old Testament. So I, I, 
I think about the fact that at Advent, we churches that is and an the lectionary which is a grouping of texts chosen by some sort of scholarly group of people um and it, it will include an old testament passage it will include a psalm it will include a gospel passage and then usually something from usually a letter an epistle and um so it will, the Old Testament passage is almost certainly at Advent going to be something future-oriented that either we should rightly connect to Jesus' first or maybe to Jesus' second coming, depending on the passage. So I think about our desire to do that. And then when it comes to the second coming, I think about what do we imagine... What does the New Testament imagine that to look like? And we could also say, what does the Old Testament imagine God coming definitively to be like? Because the Old Testament does have, in places, this idea that, oh, at some point, there'll be some culmination, and God will, once and for all, set things right. Usually, it's set things right for Israel, Sometimes it's a broader view than that. In the New Testament, it's more particular. It's still God setting things right, but Jesus plays a role. Um, and the, if you wanted to go to one place to get one author's vision of that, you would go to uh, Revelation, um, which in our tradition is not utilized much. Um, but in other traditions, that is in other Protestant, I would say, traditions, some of them utilized quite a bit. It's the thing we should be anticipating. It's the thing we should be excited about. It's the thing we should be, uh, maybe for some, that we should be really searching for clues, maybe in modern culture or world events that that it might be happening. So I think about those two things and I wonder about I wonder about our desire to connect to Old and New Testament um which I I don't in general I don't think that's a bad desire. How are these two testaments connected, right? What are some good ways to do so? I think about the New Testament mainly gospel writers but also other books and what are the ways they try to connect them? And what do I think about the passages they choose and the way they choose to connect Old and New Testament? And then when I think about the second coming, I think all kinds of different things, which is how do I feel about, do I really have any anticipation of this thing happening in my lifetime? And the answer is definitively no. I don't even give it, I never think about it, to be perfectly honest. I don't understand the purpose of a first and a second coming, to be frank. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the delay of it, if it's something that's going to happen. I don't know understand what moment we're waiting for. I certainly don't understand the, the violent way it's depicted or have any desire for it to be that way or any excitement about a God that, deals in that kind of way so the second coming raises all kinds of 
questions um, for me. So those are my general things that I think about at this moment in my life when I think about Advent season. What about you? Well, I'll I'll begin as a um, as a pastor, and then more personal, where I've kind of evolved or how I've evolved into where I am now. But you know, I started uh, in ministry in 1982. Uh, in a church in Portage, Michigan. I was the only pastor. I did the lectionary. Uh, lectionary is uh, a three-year cycle. In other words, they're in A, B, and C. And uh, you're given passages, as Joshua said, from scholars or from whomever. And you choose one of those passages, or in some traditions, like when we were in Jerusalem at the Lutheran Church of the Redeemer in the Old City, uh, there they read all of the passages every week. Um, and I didn't do that. Uh, I generally preached out of the gospel, and whichever it was, Matthew or Mark or Luke, and sometimes John, although very not very often John. But I used, uh, if there was a psalm, I would use it in my prayer. If they're in the prophets, I would often use it as a call to worship uh, or as a benediction. And primarily as a pastor then, what I remember, and I, and I remember this distinctly, is that I wanted to, um, you know, focus my listeners, myself and my listeners, my congregants, on the, um, the characters in the biblical story, and particularly the New Testament story. And so... I wanted to focus on Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Joseph and the shepherds and whatever and try and keep this a human story, uh, which is still important to me and always has been important to me. So, and then when, but I, I also always preached every year, and this for uh, over 20 years, actually, I always preached Second Advent, too the second coming, and it was always the same message. Basically, it was the same message. Jesus could come back at any time, and you better be prepared. <laughs> that was the message, and I didn't believe it then, to be honest. I preached it, but also, you know, I was preaching a company line, and I really wasn't even literally listening to the text, which I do now, and then I have to say sometimes when I'm literally listening to the text, I say that's that's ridiculous what I'm what I'm reading here. Uh, if I if I were to take this literally, I would reject it. So when I think about Advent, both first and second, then that's what I did. You know, I preached because I wanted uh, people to stay focused on the humanity of Jesus, and I still would do that. I haven't changed from that. I still think that's important. But in terms of the second advent, the second coming, you know, I think the teaching that we do on the second coming is irresponsible and dangerous because it allows people to detach themselves from their own responsibility in thinking that God's going to somehow return in the the imminent future. To rescue us. And so therefore, why should we care about uh, 
the poor? Or why should we care about the earth? Why should we care about any of these things? God's going to come. He's not going to let the earth be destroyed. He's going to come and rescue us. So why worry about that? I think that's irresponsible, and it's dangerous, and it's there. It's out there. So this, I think this time of the year, what's often preached about the second coming is irresponsible. Jesus is not coming back in my lifetime, my children's lifetime, or my grandchildren's lifetime. Lou, who is six years old, your daughter, who's six years old, if we don't do something, by the time she's 30, there will be millions of refugees looking for places to be safe if we don't do something about the climate. that Every expert says that. And here we are thinking that somehow God's going to do something about this when God would say, I think, you need to do something about this for the sake of your granddaughter and her children and her grandchildren. You know, when I say these things, which I've done only once, I did this from the pulpit, and I, and I, I regret it. When I said this, of course, it was a great alarm and great distress that I would say from the pulpit that I don't think God's come, Jesus is coming back in my lifetime or my children's lifetime or my grandchildren's lifetime, and that it's irresponsible to, to, to live our lives thinking that. That just causes all kinds of anxiety among people. In terms of the prophets, you know, the need to connect, and I say need, you say desire, I say need. I think that many folks in the Christian tradition need to connect the prophecies in the Old Testament with Jesus in order to somehow validate Jesus. And that, I reject. I don't think that we need to connect those to validate Jesus. I, I just, For me, the validation of Jesus is the resurrection. And we can talk about that at another time. But for me, the validation of Jesus, and that's what Paul said too, the vindication. Peter, when he's talking to Cornelius and Paul later, the vindication and I, I would say validation of Jesus is the resurrection event. So all this other stuff, if we could get beyond the need to connect these two, and then we could then I think we could honestly look at them and say, you know, what what is happening here with these prophecies being included in Matthew, Mark and Luke in the synoptic gospels? Why are they there? So that's kind of what what I hope we can have a conversation about today. Yes. Because I know you have thoughts about that. Yeah. I, um, if, so I would say this, if Jesus's life and ministry played out in a way that obviously connected to the old Testament, we wouldn't need gospels that go around citing a bunch of passages for us. Right. We wouldn't, you don't, we wouldn't need Matthew to cite however many he does, which is quite a bit. Because we'd say, this is so obviously flows from the Old Testament. We don't even need you to do that work for us. Um, but when you read Matthew, I get the sense, at least at this point in my life, of sort of an anxious interpreter of Jesus' ministry who feels 
the same sort of thing we feel, the same anxieties many of us feel, which is, I don't quite understand how this connects to the Old Testament. Um, I don't even quite understand how the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the things he's saying connects with the end of it. I don't understand how death and resurrection has anything to do with the kingdom of God. I don't get it at all. That would be how I feel. I don't understand how those things connect. That's internal to Jesus' ministry itself, let alone how you connect those two things to the Old Testament. I mean, I think that's a task beyond anyone. But so when I read Matthew now, what I see is someone who just feels compelled out of, I think, an anxiety of saying, man, this is, some of this is really different. It's not what we thought we were going to get. But if I work hard enough, because I'm a smart person, I think Matthew probably was, I think I can spin some stuff here. (laughs) And I think some people will buy it. And I think it will help some people. Um, And when he says some people, I think he means Jews. I think Matthew was fairly, uh, more than the other authors, concerned about connecting Judaism to Jesus. I might be able to convince some people. It's a stretch, but I might be able to do it. And and what has happened is that, and then I'll just end by reading this quote, is most Christians, and even I would say Christian academics, have chosen to say that Matthew got it right. He was um, inspired to find these prophetic passages, and um, we ought to adopt his mindset. Right, um, right, right. As opposed to saying to seeing him the way I just described, they would say, no, no, no. You need to sort of get on board, change your mind. He's the one seeing it rightly. You're seeing, you're blinded by, I don't know, I don't know what I'm blinded by. I, I guess they would say uh, rationality. You want to? You, you're you're being overly intellectual with it. Or these are modern ways of understanding the Bible, right? Setting it in a historical context and and such. But they weren't. They didn't have those kinds of needs that you do. So this is a this is a quote from. Man, his name's escaping me now. Echoes of Scripture in the Gospel. I. I quoted it once before, Hayes, Richard Hayes. He's yeah. a New Testament, a highly renowned New Testament scholar at Duke. I, I didn't ever have any classes with him, but I know him. And he turns out um, excellent books and articles. He's, high, he's highly respected. He's also quite conservative, not to the point of, he's not a fundamentalist, I, I think, but I think he would use the term evangelical. So he writes this book in which he goes through the ways in which the gospel writers use the Old Testament. And in the introduction, he says this. In this book, I will propose that the gospel writers summon us to a conversion of the imagination. We will learn to read scripture rightly only if our minds and imaginations are opened by seeing the scriptural text and therefore the world through the evangelist's eyes. That is just a classic, for me anyway, just a classic manipulation. Right. It's like, no, no, no. 
Yeah, well, Don't I wonder. Stop thinking about it yeah. with the rationality that right. you come at it with. The only way you're going to see Scripture rightly is if your mind and imagination are open by seeing the scriptural text and the world through the eyes of the evangelist. Therefore, the evangelists and the text they wrote, that becomes the reality that you must submit to. Ignore your own rationality. Ignore the world you see around you. And be have everything filter through the evangelist's minds. That, for me... It, it's it's manipulative. Yeah, it's unfair to ask that of people. I, I mean, so and this is I mean, like I said, he's a highly respected scholar, but stuff like that it it, um, it bugs me greatly, and I think it's unfair, mm-hmm. and I think it's irresponsible. Yeah, I I thought when you quoted a Dookie, you were going to quote something you liked, so it kind of you caught me by surprise when you quoted quoted that. As I was listening, I thought, what? Yeah, that yeah, I think that there is a great deal of fear to release release each other and our, to to think outside the orthodox box. And in fact, you know, you're you're really not allowed to in my circles you're not allowed to. In the seminary I graduated from you're not allowed to think outside the box. If you do, you you will be eventually punished by it. Now, that's just a fact. The college I graduated from has become even more entrenched in one way of looking at things and one way only. And, and you will be punished or you will be ostracized. You will be left out of the dialogue. Yeah, remember Peter N. says... In that podcast we listen to, which is excellent, it's, it's a Bible for normal people. He does one, uh, it's recently, so we're recording on December 6th. There's one that he talks, he reacts to a um, blog that was on the Gospel Coalition site, and it's it's really, really well done, yeah. his reaction to it. And what he calls that is, he says, um, what the author says is, or what the author urges for people is, and this is to evangelical, maybe even fundamentalists, is bunker mentality. Yeah, that's right. That's the word he uses. And that's kind of what you're describing. It's a bunker mentality. We got to hunker down. We got to. We have to continue believing these particular doctrines that we've been ascribing to for hundreds of years, maybe even we could say thousands of years. Um, and that's that's our task. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm experiencing, too, um, in various places, some places that it saddens me, quite frankly. And I'm just going to just going to say that Um, uh, because these are my places. These are my people. There's a lack of freedom in there from thinking outside the orthodox box. And it's I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why, why the fear is there and the anxiety is there. And, and you know, and I don't know. So, let, I mean, so let's think about the prophets again and the prophecy. Is there a way to look at what the synoptic gospels and the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And Matthew and Luke then are the ones who are going to call up prophecies or passages from 
the Hebrew scriptures, and particularly the prophets, and connect them to Jesus' birth and early life and ministry. And um, Mark does a little bit, not just not as much as not as much, but he does uh, some. Right, thank you. So, from my view, and and I'd like you know I would like you to react to this, Josh. I look at these and I say there's legitimacy in going back to the Hebrew scriptures, the prophets, looking at passages there and saying Jesus embodies that passage. Where I am troubled is when people try and say that prophet, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, um, Malachi, Micah, these are the four prophets who are quoted this Advent season. They were talking about Jesus when they inspired wrote these passages. No, they were not. Not in any way were they thinking about any future king or future Messiah. They were talking about current events and what they expected and hoped for and saw in their present day. So, Joshua, this is my view, and you know I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this because I'm not—I'm pretty sure you won't share my view completely. I don't have any problem with people looking back at these passages and saying Jesus embodied that in his ministry, or in his personality, or in his life—that he embodied that. But, but I—I'm—I'm—I do not believe the prophets were were talking about Jesus when they wrote these things. Now that maybe is just a distinction I want to make so I can keep keep peace with myself on these these passages in in the gospels. That that may be Josh. Mm-hmm. But that's where I'm at right now. I would say I basically agree with you. I think if you want to look back and see in Old Testament anywhere in the Old Testament, connections between Jesus' ministry and the things he's advocating and the things he's teaching and some of the things he's doing, right? And see uh, connections between things prophets said God was for or against or in some cases comparing Jesus and miracles that he does to miracles that were done by uh, Elijah uh, and Elisha, basically. I think those connections are are totally legitimate. I think that if you want to go to the Old Testament and find proof, because w- w- I'll just finish that thought. If you want to go to the Old Testament to find proof that this what this plan is of old, something like that, like God has been setting us up, right? for right. Jesus right. to come and to do these exact things that Jesus does, be born in this particular place, in this particular way, and then have this kind of ministry, and then ultimately you would, most Christians would say, and then die and rise again. Like, man, if you go back to the Old Testament, you can see it. That's what God's been right. getting everybody ready for. You can make that case, and some people will believe you, Right? I, I don't I won't believe you. I don't think you'll have a strong case to make. I think that if you find people that are trying to be objective about it and you put forth this case to them objectively, 
and they didn't have a stake in whether it were true or not. I think the vast majority of them, and um, go, maybe just go find any Jewish person, they would say, sorry, you don't have a compelling case. And I think they would be right. That would be the way I would say it. I mean, one thing to just say is that all these passages, every single passage that will be talked about in a church this Advent season, not a, from the Old Testament, not a single one of them will have the word Messiah in it. Right. Zero. Just, just that alone should give us pause. These aren't a bunch of passages that say, and then my Messiah will come. The word is used very infrequently in the Old Testament. It means anointed one. And it's not used in any, as far as I can think of, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't think it's used in any single passage that we, we being Christians, utilize during Advent or any time of the year to say, look at this, how this passage from the Old Testament is prophesying about Jesus. None of those passages have the word Messiah in them. Right. That alone, right. I mean, that. how about that? That's kind of amazing. Well, the other troubling part of it for me, and these are things that I want to be able to question without labels or without being labeled, right? Um, oh, you don't believe the Old Testament. or I mean, you know, this is my own baggage and some of my frustration about what's happening coming out here. But I want our listeners to hear that because hear that frustration because I think you share this frustration and the fear that goes along with it that we are driving people away or keeping people away because we don't allow for these kinds of questions. So the other one of the other things that bothers me about the way we use prophecy is we cherry pick. So we'll pick a passage out in in let's say Micah. I have one here that's one of the passages for this advent. And and it starts in it's chapter five starts with verse two, it says, "But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time." When she who is in labor has borne forth, brought forth, then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. And it ends there. And I can read that and say, yes, I see Jesus in that passage. I do. Not completely, not totally, not even close to completely or totally. A good bit of the things that are said in here weren't accomplished, still haven't been accomplished, still still, we're waiting for, right? But what bugs me the most about that is, well, then nobody ever points out that we stop there. We just stop at five, verse, the first part of verse 5, and we don't go on to the next part that says, if the Assyrians come into our land and tread upon our soil, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight installed as rulers. They shall rule the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. 
They shall rescue us from the Assyrians if they come into our land or tread within our border. All right, what happened to the prophet there? Did he did he get off point? You know, we just take that out of there and say, this, this is about Jesus. But the rest of what the prophet says not only does not happen and is immaterial and irrelevant and rejected, well, how is that? How how do we do that with with credibility and integrity before people who are thinking, who actually come to our church and sit in our pews and think? Don't just take whatever we say or whatever is said, but actually have questions about texts but are never allowed to ask them, or we never raise them. So they're sitting out there going, "Well, is he ever gonna? Is he ever gonna raise this question, which seems pretty obvious to me?" The answer to that is what? No, no. we're definitely not going to do that. <laughs> no. So what happens is we don't tend to think of the ways in which what we're saying or what how we're interpreting or making connections that those should be intellectually satisfying in some way. They should have to pass some sort of intellectual rigor, a test of some kind. Instead, we say things like, Hayes says, no, you have to, you have to undo your mind and redo it in the way that the evangelists are asking you to. That's what's asked of you as a, as a Christian person. That's not what, that's what's required of you. And there's really nothing to say against that except to say, uh, I'm not going to do that. I don't think it's fair to ask other people to do that. I think Peter Enns was saying in that podcast, which I thought was really great, is that what's happening is people who were raised in the church are being turned away because, and they're the ones leaving the church because fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, asks those things of people. Turn your brain off. You don't get to use that here. I know this doesn't make, not, we don't say I know this doesn't make sense, but if you think it doesn't make sense, that's your fault. You need to adopt a mind in which you can make those things work for yourself. And what's happening, and I don't know if this is, it's hard to measure things happening in your time, but it seems to me there's a decent amount of people that are just saying, can't do that, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, as opposed to liberal folks pushing people away from their childhood faith. Right. Right? Right. Right. Well, yeah, because we can't accept the responsibility on ourselves for what we've done and what we've created. And, and again, I'm, I'm not interested in demonizing or in uh, being uh, overly critical. I, I just want some space. I want us to create some space for questions, number one. I want us to be able to encourage thinking number 2 i think i think we don't i don't think we do in our churches and you know i i want us to stop thinking we have to protect people treating them like uh they can't handle uh, any kind of 
critiques or criticism. I preached last week at a church here in town, and, you know, I talked about uh, the fact that the disciples had no concept of including Gentiles in the early church, the Jewish disciples, all of them. It wasn't on their radar. They never thought about it. Now, so then I had to, then I asked the congregation, I said, so was Jesus not clear or were the disciples, and I used this word and I chose it on purpose, or were the disciples just that stupid? And then I said to the congregation, and I know exactly where you go when I ask that question. You could never say Jesus wasn't clear, and yet you should be able to. You should be able to. I want you to be able to say what happened there. Because God did get it right through the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, Joshua, heads were nodding all over the place in every age. Now, there was resistance, too. Arms all of a sudden got crossed. But and I see this all the time when I when I when I raise these issues. I try to do it carefully. I try to do it sensitively, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to keep doing it. And it amazes me the response I get from the congregation. I get smiles. I get heads bobbing. I get people coming up afterwards thanking me for that. So I know that there are people sitting in our congregations who have these same questions, and I want us to just. Allow them to be there with their questions instead of making them or really communicating to them. If you're thinking these things, just keep your mouth shut. I heard a podcast in which uh, Richard Rohr was being interviewed. He's a Franciscan, right? Franciscan priest. Really interesting guy doing a lot of creative work. And those are the people, frankly, I'm interested in, people who are doing creative work um, around, gosh, anything, to be honest. <laughs> um, in this case, it's around Christianity, but I'm interested in anybody doing creative work around anything. Um, but he was saying, and, and I'll see if I can make this connect. I think it does. At one point, offhandedly, he said, I think we ought to stop using the word faith for 10 to 15 years in in Christian circles. I thought that's absolutely right. That word and our obsession with it is stifling us, I think, dramatically. Because what happens when you start to question these kinds of things that we're talking about is it feels to people like you are... Um, undermining people's faith. And what is that built upon? That faith is built upon formulaic, doctrinal Christianity. So, and what we're talking about now is a part of that formulaic, doctrinal Christianity. It's complicated. There are volumes of work trying to make it all work. You know, they're called systematic theology, and people who are into that have different um, theologians that they like. But the whole premise of systematic theology is that 
we can come up with a full explanation of the way in which God is going to save us all, right? And one of the things that needs to be a part of this is this connection between Old and New Testament and that Jesus' coming is a fulfillment of something, right? And then Jesus' death and resurrection needs to be the fulfillment of something before it. It needs to all connect. And then that's what our faith is in. Our faith is rooted in this doctrine that we've been told is the truth. And then what that gets us is, typically, eternal salvation. So when you start to sort of question parts of the formula... I don't know anymore what parts of the formula are really critical for people or what parts of it are going to get people anxious. I think this one, we talked about this a long time ago, and we said we didn't think it's credible to say that the Old Testament prophesied or predicted a Messiah like Jesus. We didn't get a lot of pushback, but we got some. So for the people who pushed back on us, nope. That We can't take that out of the formula. So for some people, when you start to, to question parts of the formula that they've adopted, that they think leads them to eternal salvation, they're going to resist. And the, the thing that encompasses that formula is you have faith in the formula. That's the idea. You're to have faith in the formula. That's what being a Christian, at least initially, right? When, when you convert to Christianity, what do you convert from to? I'm sure it's varied for a lot of people. But one of the things you do is you adopt the salvation formula. Mm-hmm. Generally, that's required. Um, you have to prophesy Jesus is Lord and he died for your sins. I think mm-hmm. those are kind of the basics, aren't they? Jesus is Lord. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead, right? You can do the Apostles' Creed or something. Maybe that's a shortened version of the formula. So what happens is, I think anyways, is questioning any parts of the formula right. are going to be met with resistance. Yeah, Part of the formula is the, the Bible as the inerrant word of god and um that's the, but that's any, the undergirding of the formula yeah that's, that's right that's how you get you get the formula the by saying the stones. bible's never wrong so then you go to the bible and you you, right. you ferret out the formula from the bible right 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 and then you adopt that like that's that's what i just think for a long time that's what it's certainly protestant christianity maybe less so Catholicism, has been doing. And what's happening is people are just starting to be like, I don't buy that formula. Or I don't buy this part of it. Or I don't buy this other part of it. Or, gosh, there are parts of that formula that are pretty ugly. I remember when I was campus minister at Grand Valley State University, a uh, student coming up to me one time and asking um, this question, um, he said, um, 
do I have to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? This was now in 2001, so 17 years ago. I've never forgotten that encounter because I was like the first time anybody had the good sense to ask me that question. As I look back on it now, I remember when he asked me that question, I was like, well, I've never, I said to him, I don't ever, but nobody's ever asked me that before. I don't know what, I don't know how to answer you. I said, let me, let me think on that, <laughs> you know. But then I did think about it and I did uh, go to some other folks and say, you know, what do you think about that? And I went back to this student and I said, no, I, I don't. I don't think you have to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian. I, you know, I'd like you to. I said to I remember I said I'd like you to because I think it's possible. But no, you know, now I would ask that question. <laughs> you know, do I have to believe in the virgin birth to be a pastor, to be a preacher? You know, and then how can I preach that then if I have doubts about it? Right? You know, how do I preach Matthew and Luke if, if I have doubts about it? And I don't know the answer to that question. I'm just avoiding preaching about it, to be honest, because I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, I think the virgin birth, it's just, it's a distraction. I, I agree with that 100%. It's just a it, certainly isn't a, it certainly is a distraction to Jewish people. If Matthew thought that somehow he was going to connect Jewish people with Jesus through a story of a virgin birth, he was dead wrong. Because it's, it's mythology for, for Jewish people. It's, it's the, Greek and Roman. It's in service of a formula. It's in service of a salvation formula. God, Jesus had to be both divine and human in order to... And then, you know, it goes on from there and uh, you end up because uh, there was a debt or that had to be paid or a penalty that had to be paid and a regular human couldn't pay. That's what it does. It's in service now anyways. I don't know what it meant to Matthew, truly. Right. I don't, I don't know because Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time in service formulas. I mean, in formulas for salvation, he doesn't ever describe one to us. He never sits down and says, and this is what it all means. Um, but that's what it is for us. It's just, it's part of a salvation formula, and I think it's an I think it's a total distraction because I'm not at all interested in salvation formulas. Um, right. To be perfectly honest, I just it doesn't interest me at all. Right. And that's what it serves in Christian doctrine. That's what it serves to do. But how would you wrap up? today josh well i would just end by saying this the thing that connects old and new testament and advent and old testament is there is a desire apparently on the part of god to dwell with human beings to find out a way to do that so in the old testament he dwells with israel somehow and the meeting point is the tabernacle or the temple then in the new testament while there's still a temple, and that's the place where there's a meeting point, Jesus enters the picture, and that's God in the flesh. And So I think the connection point and the thing to think about at Advent is why does God desire to dwell with human beings? 
what's the impediment? What's stopping it? Do we really think, and this comes back to the salvation formula, this is kind of how I'll end, do we really think there's some obstacle? God has an obstacle to the thing God wants that can only be solved in a very particular way? Just stop for a second, forget everything you think you know, and think about how absurd that sounds. God desires a certain thing. We think of God as all-powerful, does what he wants, right? He can't get that thing in any particular way. He, he has to do it. He has certain things need to happen for God to get the thing God wants. That, that is bizarre. But that is, that is what we've created, trying to understand the Bible and Jesus and Jesus coming and then Jesus is going to come back. And the, but the connection point between Old and New Testament is God has this desire. How does God get it done? Thanks so much for listening. My father, the pastor, suggests we need to be more constructive in this podcast. And I suspect he's right. And so in the next episode, we are going to try to give some constructive thoughts related to Advent. Will there be deconstruction in that episode? Yes. But there will also be some constructive thoughts and ideas. So please tune in for that, which will be coming out in the next few days. Thanks so much for listening. Take care.